Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. We are in the book of Daniel, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go there. Um, We are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If we could make sure the lights are up. Thank you. Thank you. Well, tonight, as you come in here, there is a deep desire on your life to be somebody. (laughs) And if you didn't want that, that's okay. But the reality is that we live in a city where you're pressured to feel that on a daily basis. Success is all around us. The desire for success, the pressure of success, to be someone, that is at the very center of the city we live, move, and breathe in. And yet you can have success, but there's another type of success, and that is God-granted success, knowing it is God that gave you the success, and it is God that you give credit for the success, and you believe that every opportunity came from God. That kind of God-granted success is called a blessing. When you know you've been blessed, when you know everything you have is from God, you know you've been blessed by the Most High God. So it is important that you know that if you want success, if you want God-granted success, in other words, if you want a blessing, you must realize that God tests you with stress before he trusts you with success. You must be ready for the test. And what God is testing is, are you blessable? Can he stress you? Can he put you under pressure? Who are you when you're under pressure? Who are you when no one's around of which that you would want to accommodate? Who are you when you have all types of people that are not like you calling you to conform to someone that you don't believe in? Who are you? And we, we have to realize that this kind of testing happens from external forces, social pressures, economic pressures, Pressuring you to be someone. External pressure causes you to question your internal principles. Asking yourself, what do I really believe? And who am I really? You must be able to handle stress. In athletics and in the medical world, they have what they call a stress test. They'll have you run on a treadmill because they want to see how the blood flows in your heart. In other words, they can't really tell how your heart works until they see you under stress. In the same way, God must allow you to have times of stress. And in those pressurized moments, the question at hand will be, who are you? And more importantly, whose are you? Who do you submit to? Who do you let lead you? Who do you follow? You might have been like me when you came home one time and you made that mistake talking to your parents and you wanted to do something and you said, well, everybody's doing it. Keisha's doing it. Bobby's doing it. Wendy's doing it. Lamont's doing it. And your mother was like, I'm not their parent. You are my child. And based upon my ownership over you, you will do what I say do. I'm not their parent. In other words, she says, you are mine. Whose are you? Not just who are you. You are, this afternoon, following someone. And in light of that, pressure will bring out who your real leader is. Now, I must say, last two weeks I haven't been preaching, so I've been in the back. The 6 o'clock is different than the 4 o'clock. Well, no, there's good and bad. Not bad, but I'm going to keep it real with y'all. 
I'm, okay, this is, this is, I'm going to give you all a little bit of evaluation. Y'all's worship transcends the six. I mean, the four o'clock. Y'all's worship transcends. But y'all in sermons are quieter than the four. But you can beat them today. Amen. <laughs> I just think y'all are contemplative, maybe. Maybe y'all just woke up later. and, Amen. And so... <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he has enslaved a group of Israelites. And in enslaving them, he has brought them into Babylon. And now that they're living in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 2, we learn that several of these Hebrew boys, these leaders, are now exalted into Babylonian leadership. In other words, even though they are the people of God, they are leaders in Babylon. So over time, what they'll have to wrestle with is how much are we part of one kingdom versus another? How Babylonian are we and how much are we of Israel? W.E.B. Du Bois coined a term in his book, The Souls of Black Folks. He was talking about how the Negro had come to America through via slavery and how he was always seen as black, regardless of what he was doing. He would be both Negro and American. And he said that the Negro would always have to operate in a two-ness, he said. And he coined the term double consciousness. And what he was acknowledging is that though the black man or what he would consider the Negro was living in America, he would always know he was black, yet he would try to live as American. He would always have to wrestle with that. And what that phrasing, double consciousness, is indicative of is that even though you are a child of God, you are operating in this world, you have to operate in a sense that I will not fully assimilate to Babylon, i.e. the world, but I will always live as a child of God in this world. I will always be a kingdom kid. And even though everyone might be doing one thing, I do not have to bow down to those idols. We have to live with a double consciousness, knowing we are in the world, but not of it. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two has been given a revelation His dream has been interpreted to him, and the dream was about a statue of sorts. And it would have gold, and it would have clay, and it would have bronze. But then this dream inspires him to make an actual statue. So in Daniel chapter 3, reads this way. In Daniel 3.1, you can look in your Bible, or you can look on your phone, or you can look on the screen. Daniel 3.1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold or an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Here, Nebuchadnezzar creates this huge image. Notice that If you look back in chapter 2 of Daniel, the image that was relayed to him through Daniel was one with gold and it it had bronze and it had clay. But this one is fully gold. It's interesting because what was revealed to him by God was acknowledging that this statue had gold and other lesser parts. But he only wanted to see the gold. It's crazy. He only wanted the people to see the good parts, the gold parts. I'll get to that in a second. Praise God. But this man creates a 99-foot statue, nine feet wide. Daniel chapter 2, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And, at the very end, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I don't have the time to go into detail, because I know you don't know what a satrap is, praise God, (laughs) nor do you know what a prefect is, but it doesn't matter. Because these are the important people. These are all the people that you want to impress. These are all the people who have leadership. These are all the people who have power. In other words, you could say these are all the verified people, praise God. 
And they are the ones he wants to make sure see his image, his gold 99-foot image. And then in verses 4 through 6, and the herald, this would be the town crier, proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Wow. Old Nebuchadnezzar sets up this situation for the people. Now, from what we can tell, the Bible will tell us if a person is very tall. The Bible will tell us if a person is very short. So for the most part, what we can tell is Nebuchadnezzar is most likely five foot tall, six feet tall, but he creates this 99-foot image of himself, all gold for the people to worship. And you think to yourself, what kind of person would only be five foot tall? Even the statues in our country try to replicate the actual size. Why would you put this 99-foot tall image of yourself while you're still alive? Why would you do that? Because in many ways, he wanted to make himself seem like he was larger than life. As if he was this dawning God amongst us. And we have to be very careful, church. Because we cannot believe that this was just something done in antiquity. As if this is not being done to you right now. And done all around you right now. The world creates larger-than-life images for you to worship, whether it is actors or entertainers, whether it is bloggers or podcasters. Whatever kind of person, if you think of somebody who's a musician, they normally won't just come out. They'll come out with the lights, the camera, the action, the sound, the smoke, the fog, because they're trying to come across as if they're bigger than what they really are. When you do that, you are being drawn in to see them for more than what they really are. And when you're drawn into that, it is not just them. It is their beauty. It is their fame. It is their power. And every day, you are being pressured to worship that fame and worship that power. Worship that imagery of success. But we can't lie. We cannot front and act like it is not affecting us. You see, because the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar, though he creates this huge image, and we admit, yes, huge images are built online, you are being pressured to create a false image too. you are being pressured to look constantly impressive. To look constantly strong. You are being pressured. Your real self and then your curated self. The one that you've put together. Fashionable, smart, wise. And we have this never-ending highlight reel we want to show people See, we have to be very careful of just dissing Nebuchadnezzar so quick because we have to realize that image building and idol building, they play on the same playground. 99-foot Nebuchadnezzar, but the real Nebuchadnezzar is five feet. And you are being pressured to show a 99-foot you, but you're only five feet. <laughs> I am... Um, I, uh, you like my jacket? Praise God. You know, I, I, I like this jacket a lot. You know, I, 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 um, you know I, I get people to help me find clothes. And, you know, they actually have, like, image consultants. Not that I have one, praise God. But they're out there. And those are good things. Like, you should, you should want to look popping. 
right? You should want to look good. You should want to make sure that you look great. But here's what I've realized. You can scour the world for image consultants, but it's very hard to find character consultants because the five foot you is the real you. You see, the image that you show to the world, that's the world that you curate and show. But the real you, who speaks to the five foot you? It must have taken hours and hours and days and months and weeks to build this 99 foot tall image of Nebuchadnezzar. He probably had a team of people. And the people we worship, the people we say look amazing, they probably have a team of people building their image too. Making sure the lights, the cameras, that, that moment that looked like it was spontaneous was probably set up. Also that you can be so impressed. And now you are being pressured to look constantly impressive. And what we have to realize is that if, you, if you're not careful, too much time spent in image creation will lead to character corruption. Too much time trying to look a certain way, to seem a certain way. <laughs> Do you, you know what I've realized? People really be thinking the online them is them. And what's worse, the people online be thinking that online person is really, that's who they really are. And we're all being fooled. Because behind the scenes, there's the real you. Don't be so quick to diss Nebuchadnezzar's 99-foot image of himself when many of us are trying to create ourselves as 99 feet tall. But look, Daniel 8 through 12, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, king, live forever. That's what kiss-ups do, you know. <laughs> oh, king, you just, oh, I just, I love that decree. Look at that 99 feet. Oh, it's so gold, so fine. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, king, live forever. You, oh, king, do you know you made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image? That's what you said, right? And whoever does not fall and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, right? That's what you said. Verse 12, did you know there are certain Jews who... Uh, you appointed, remember those guys, the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, those guys, they don't pay attention to you. Yeah, they, they don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Now, I want you to pay attention to one of the key things they said. They didn't say there are certain men. They said there are certain Jews. And there's a very clear reason why they said that. You see, the Jews were the enslaved people, and they went from being enslaved to being in power. And from what we can tell, Nebuchadnezzar never realized that these young Hebrew boys weren't bowing down. He never even saw them. So they most likely weren't trying to draw attention to their rebellion. They were just trying to worship God and quietly do their business on their own. But there were these certain Chaldeans that noticed them, but they didn't notice them not just because they weren't bowing down. They, didn't, they noticed them because they were Jewish. And this is anti-Semitism at its finest. This is racism at its finest. Now, what is happening at core here? is that there will always be people who think certain people should always be on the bottom. And the minute that certain group of people start to ascend bottomness and go to highness, you have a problem with their ascension. It wasn't that they were Jewish alone, it was that they were Jewish in leadership. They had no problem when the Jews were slaves, but they have a problem when the Jew is in leadership. Notice this then. If that is what will bring that about, that sense of racial hierarchy, you and your career now, you're starting on the lower tier. You're on the bottom. 
But some of you will ascend to the top. Some of you will be leaders. Some of you will have influence. Some of you will have power. Don't sleep. When you get power, some of the people that were with you on the bottom will begin to have beef with you when you're on top. You see, when you start to have influence, people start looking for weaknesses. Look at, look, 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 look. Because they want to get behind your power. People want to know how human you are. And you're like, see, when we were all, when misery loves company, when we were all, we all were like, we're whack, we're broke. <laughs> we all broke. And everybody was just having fun together. Like, you didn't have nothing. But then when one of you gets something, just watch this. When one of you gets something, jealousy and envy will slowly come around the corner. Because your presence causes their insecurities to come out. You're like, but what did I do? Listen, it's your ascension that's causing the tension. It's just the fact that you just seem a little higher than them. Notice, notice the tension that's happening here in the text happens simply because the Jews were always seen as bottom people. Well, now, verses 13 and 14. Then Nebuchadnezzar in, went into this furious rage. He commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you, you don't serve my, uh, serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? You see there... Verse 13, what Nebuchadnezzar did the first time he heard about it, he went into a rage. He flipped out. He started wilding. Right? <laughs> Notice egomaniacs always operate with the sense of feeling threatened and being afraid. And I know here you're thinking about a boss you're thinking about a leader, but I want you to think about you just for a second, okay? Because I know you're thinking about you. Keisha should be here at this sermon. She needs to, she needs to, this is good for her. She needs to hear this, right? Like you think about somebody else, stop thinking about them. Think about you. All right, so, so, but here's, 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 here's what's happening. When you can't handle noncompliance, the reason you have a short fuse is because there's not much distance between your title and your identity. You, you have to be in power. People have to do what you say. Because the minute that people don't respond to your influence, you then feel like identity theft has happened. And it causes you to go into this whirlwind of like, man, who am I now? See, when you don't have a fully built out identity beyond a title and beyond power, when you can't be somebody outside of that given position, then you're always operating in insecurity. <clears throat> You'll never admit a weakness. You'll always give people recommendations. You'll always have advice, but you'll never really listen. You'll never be humble. This is what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He flies into a rage. Children of God, people of God, brothers and sisters, watch your rage. Tonight, ask yourself, what causes me to flip out? What really gets at the core of my rage? Underneath that, you're going to find an idol somewhere you're going to find an identity crisis somewhere because subtly it's not enough to be a child of God. Daniel 3, 15, thank you. Daniel 3, 15. <clears throat> now, if you are ready, when you hear now, I tell you, boy, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is what we call 
Huh? He's dramatic. Someone should do a play called Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> now, if you are ready, so, so just, I just want you to see what's happening here. This is the classic moment where the villain gives the speech before, you know that moment in like everything, he's like, oh, well, Mr. Bond, you know, he just does that. You know what I'm talking about? You know, so he, he's, so look at what he says. Now, if you're ready, as if he cares, right? If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made well and good. You know what he says at the end? When you, when you hit the floor, drop down well and good. You better do it good. <laughs> Last service, when I said hit the floor, when the music comes on, people were tripping. They were like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. I was like I'm not talking about music in that sense. Praise God. He says, but if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then he says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, yeah. He, he, puts, he puts God to the test. He says, now, now mind you, I'm going, I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace. Now, uh, uh, later in the chapter, it says he cranks up the heat seven times, the regular heat. And he's thinking to himself, who can actually beat me? Here is what's happening with the egomaniac called Nebuchadnezzar. He believes his consequences are ultimate and his judgments are final. He believes his strength transcends anyone else's strength. This here is the power of intimidation. He presumes that no one has strength like mine. Therefore, give me your fear. That's what he wanted. I want, before I get your obedience, I want your fear. And there are people who are not satisfied with compliance. They want to intimidate you. Because they believe that their strength is in proportion greater than not only your strength, but anyone else's strength in their purview. So they presume they are the most powerful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says in verse 16, answered and said to the king, I love this. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Oh, I love that. Now, what's funny is that they do answer them. He's like, he does give them an answer, but he's like, I just want you to know that I know you think you're big and bad and strong. Like, I know you intimidate people. I want you to know I have not given you my fear. I am not intimidated by you. I serve a God that is greater, grander, and stronger than you. In fact, I don't even have to answer you, right? So that, that's, now, I, I, I want to, this is a commercial break, side note. Never get into the habit of always having to defend yourself. Do you know there was a man named Jesus who lived, died, rose again? Do you know something about him? He was the perfect person, but he was considered a criminal. If a perfect man can be considered a criminal, what you think your reputation is going to be? Perfect? You think everybody's going to always big you up and clap and always celebrate you? Do you know when you do godly things, people might presume that they're ungodly things? And you could be doing it with pure, in other words, you could have pure devotion and it could be criminalized. So know this, let him fight your battles. That, that's part of the problem when we get into this image thing. We get, so, we get, the minute we start doing great things for God and people start talking about us, we're like, well, I must be in the wrong ministry. What are you talking about? You might be in the center of God's will and everyone thinks you're doing the wrong thing when you're doing the right thing. The question is, what did God say? Not what he said, she said, not what people say. What did God say? And are you doing what God told you to do? That's the question. 
Never let them intimidate you. And so they believed that Nebuchadnezzar's authority was proportionally smaller than God's. I want to say one more thing. Um, Fear is an amazing thing. I tell you, boy, it gets your mind going. How strong is God in your life? How strong is he? Do you believe he's stronger than what you're afraid of? I mean, this is a simple question. Is God stronger than your greatest fear? I was in the backyard playing when I was 15. I was always a big kid. I am still a big child now for this guy. And, um, but I looked older for my age. I still look older for my age now. Um, but I was in the backyard playing, and um, I was with these older boys, but I was a kid. And so we're running and playing, you know, I catch the ball and I run and I hit this kid. He falls down and he's like, why'd you hit me? I was like, because it's football. And you know what I mean? And I just, so he's mad. He was embarrassed because he found out I was a boy, basically. And he was this grown man. And so then he steps to me. And I'm just, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm about to fight this grown man who shaves. And it's just like, okay. You know what I'm saying? So I'm about to fight this man. I'm just like, okay, okay. You know, I... I I, I put on the hardest look. I could scrunch my face up as far as, as I could. So he's like, yeah, you know, and he's yelling. But in, inside, my sister was dating this dude that played for Iona College out in New Rochelle. He was a defensive tackle. Dude was rocked up. So he's yelling, and my sister runs inside. He's yelling at me, and I'm just standing there, and I'm just acting like I'm going to do something. Meanwhile, I'm like, man, this dude shaves. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So all of a sudden, I look around the corner, and my sister is there, and her boyfriend's there. And he comes around the corner, and he's like, is there a problem? And I look at him, I go, is there a problem? Yeah. Yeah. What you going to say now? He shaves. Huh? Who can intimidate you when you know you have a greater power at your right-hand side? Who can intimidate you? Why should you be, ask yourself, why am I afraid? Think of what you're afraid of and ask yourself, why am I afraid? Is God stronger than your biggest fear? I, I, I say this too, if you're leading people, people look for weaknesses. <laughs> Try to sniff it out. Don't try to be tough. Be godly. Amen. You see, this is what happens. We, get, we start to argue with people who live in the flesh and here we are, we try to be spiritual, right? I, I want to walk in the spirit, but I want to know, I'm, I want to show people I'm not a punk too. You know what I'm saying? Like I want to, I want to, no, 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 no. I want to be godly, but I want you to know that I will set it at any point. You know what I'm saying? Like we want both. I want to be a Christian that can do both. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and here's what I'm trying to tell you. This is something I've learned. When you try to live for God, and you start having difficulty with people who live in the flesh, you will not win. Because they will go to the plummet and the depths of the flesh in places that you know you will not go. Whenever you are dealing with someone who lives in the flesh, know that they always have home field advantage. They live in the flesh. You like to hang out there on the weekends, right? <laughs> That's home base, right? So you have to understand, you have to understand, in the moment that pressure is happening, the moment you feel intimidation, don't press into anger and fear. Press into prayer, contrition, brokenness, fasting. Press into his presence. That was all for free, praise God. So then verse 17 and 18, verse 17 and 18, let's read this together. Um, we're going to start at the, if this be so and end up as have set up on three. One, two, three. If this be so. Our God, we serve, and he will us 
boy. That is just a bad boy. He's like, I don't know if you know this, right? But um, our God's able. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could throw me in there. God can deliver me. But I want you to know, too, he will deliver me. Now, that is a crazy thing to say. If you throw me in the furnace, I'll be delivered. But then he says something I want you to know even more powerful. Even if I'm burnt up like a crisp, you'll never intimidate me to bow down to your idols. I'll never conform to your plan. Never. I think here we see some stages. If you want this kind of resolute, focused, courageous, convicted sense in front of pressure, then you must first know God is able. Just simply, God is able. That when everything is in crisis around me, I don't need to panic because God is able. He can, have, he can give me a peace that transcends all understanding. See, but if you are going to be this kind of person, you must first know the promises of God. In other words, you got to read the Bible. Amen. You cannot know the ability of God without knowing his instruction about who he says he is. He is not hiding himself. He has revealed himself. You must know who he is. It's like having an insurance policy, but not knowing all the benefits of it. God is telling you, these are the benefits, the promises of knowing me. He is not hiding himself. You must know the promises of God. But then the second thing that we see is he says, God will. This is the next stage of maturity for many of you. You know what God can do, but will he do it? Uh, yeah, God, God can do it for you, right. Do you believe God can do it for you? Do you believe the same power of the Holy Spirit that worked in Jesus and worked in all these great prophets, leaders, apostles, do you believe that same spirit works inside of you? And do you believe that same spirit will show up for you? You see, the problem of knowing that God will do something is the problem of expectancy. I, and I say the problem of expectancy is because anxiety comes from expectancy as well. You already believe it's not going to work out. Yeah, you know, it's just, well, if this happened and that happens, and I don't know, and who may be, and it's because you expect failure. You expect bad things. You expect problems. And here's what they did. Now, here's, here's, just listen to me. He started to operate in a spirit of expectancy and faith. There's something you've got to know about this passage. What caused them to do this with such fervor, such ability? Why'd they take such a stand? I think God would have still loved them if they, if they had bowed down and kind of like, hey, we don't want to die. Like, why did they do this? You know why? What got them into Babylon? What got them into slavery? Idol idolatry, disobedience and idolatry. It was their parents that worshiped idols. And you know what they said? I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm not going to bow down to those same idols they bowed down to. There is a chain that's linked throughout the generations of my family. And here I am being questioned to bow down to this idol like the rest I saw my family do. And I will not put another link in that chain. I will be a chain breaker in my family. I will not bow down. And so I'm expecting my God to show up. And so you start operating in a spirit of expectancy when you have determined what kind of life you want and what kind of obedience you're willing to have. But the last thing he says, but even if he doesn't, I'll still serve. This is crazy talk. Like, even if I get burnt up like a crisp, I'm still going to worship God and not you? What would cause a man to say, even if I'm not delivered from a fiery furnace, I still won't bow down to you? Maybe the reason why he was unafraid if he was delivered from that is because he's already been delivered from something greater. He's already had a greater deliverance. 
He is not intimidated by a fiery furnace because he has been delivered from a greater furnace, a greater space that is, has more intimidation to it. When you know God and you know God is the one that changed my life and God is the one that's transforming me, you live a life of being unintimidated because I've had a greater, I have a greater power in my life and I've had a greater deliverance even if it doesn't work out. That's not just confidence, that's full trust. So much of our walk with God too often is defined by what we see in the temporal. So if God gives you the job, he's good, but if he doesn't, he's bad? How's it work? You prayed, God, let me do well in the interview. You did well in the interview. I didn't get the job, you didn't get the job. Is God still good? Okay, God changed your life. He transformed you. He turned your life around, but you're not getting the benefits, the other things you want. Is God still good? Yes. You see, the, the thing is, is the goodness of God based upon the current season you're in? Or is it based upon what he's done in your life, what he did on the cross? Is the gospel good enough? Is it good enough just to be a child of God and be delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life? Is that good enough? Or do you need other treats to keep you attracted to God? How dolled up does God have to get to make you attracted to him? Is your temporal experience the thing that's holding you on to God? Or do you have enough courage in God to be disappointed by God? Can, my God, my God often will lead you to a closed door, right? What do you do when he leads you to a closed door? And it takes courage to keep knocking on doors, to keep going and moving, to keep trusting. What do you do? That's where they're at. It says in verse 23, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery burning furnace. Notice they are bound up. They wrapped them up. They put ropes on them. And then in verse 24 and 25, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, that's what you did. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And what we study and what we know is that this is Jesus walking in the fire with them. And if you want success, if you want blessed life, and you want to be able to pass tests, what you must know is you've got to get out your mind that God is always rescuing you from fires. No, you must know he saved them in the fire, not from the fire. God will save you in the fire and not always take you from the tower. Yes, sometimes God saves you from the crisis. Praise God from the crises, crises. God has saved those decisions you were gonna make and the Lord didn't let you make them and he turned the corner and you did something else. Praise God for the decisions you didn't make, the crisis you didn't have. But a lot of times God saves you in the crisis. He saves you in the midst of the fire. And what we know is that the story will go on and it says in verses 26 and 27, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. I love it. He's just looking in. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come on out. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out from the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Listen. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks weren't harmed, but even more. And there was no smell of fire on them. God didn't even allow the aroma of fire to be on them. You ever met somebody and you go, they've been through something, right? They still smell like the, f the smoke of the trial they've been through. The residue, the smoke, it's still on them. 
What causes you to not smell like the fiery trial? What causes you to have a character built up but not look like life is beating you down when you're in the fire? Do you know that it said that this son of God was in the fire with them? Now, let me ask you this. How do you think they endured? Do you think that they just had some ability to not be penetrated by the flames? The only reason why they weren't burnt up was because the son of God was in there with them. And I could imagine how big this furnace is, but I know this, if the son of God is over there and the fire is right here, I'm going to wherever he is, right? And maybe the ability to make it through the fire isn't just by going through the fire, it's who you're walking with while in the fire. The reason why they didn't smell like smoke was their proximity to Jesus. Many of us, when we're in the fiery trial, we walk away from the very person that can rescue us in the midst of it. We're mad because we're in the fire when he wants to rescue us in the fire. It is trial. God is going to use trial. But know this. It says that, do you remember how they fell into the fire? Bound, wrapped up, tied up. Do you know how they came out the fire? Unbound. The only thing that got burnt up on them were the things that were limiting them and that were holding them back. And the beauty of what God was doing was he was burning away all those things that they were bound by. And that is what's happening to you. God has you in a fire, not because he likes to put people in fires. God has you in the fire so that you can have a new level of freedom. So that he can burn away all those things. And there are things that, listen, some of us are sick and tired of us. Like you're tired of you. And you're like, God, change me. And you literally, you're on your knees like, God, change me. And God's like, get ready. Because I'm going to put you in a job. I'm going to give you a roommate. I'm going to give you a friend. I'm going to put people in your life. And you're going to be like, I thought I was choosing this nice kind of like comfort space. And really, I was jumping into the midst of the fire. And I want to encourage you to walk with Jesus in the midst of that fire. Because when there is new fire, there's new freedom that God has for you. And the Bible says in Isaiah 48, 10, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And my last thought is that the way that goldsmiths, they would take gold or they'll take any kind of nice metal and they'll refine it in fire. And what they're doing is they're burning away the impurities. And so what they would do is they would get gold and they would burn it, burn it, and they'd look at it, burn it, burn it, look at it, burn it, burn it, look at it, burn it, and look at it. And they wouldn't know that they were done until they could see the reflection of themselves. And that is what Christ is doing in your life. He's allowing you to burn and he's burning away all those impurities, all those attitudes, and the heat is helping you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you tonight that you would just cause us to know for certain that the fiery trials in my life have a purpose. God, I pray that we would walk with you through the fire. I pray that we would walk close to you in every trial that we are in. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that tonight we would do business with you. Where have I been afraid, God? What are you burning away, Jesus? How have you been dealing with me? Deal with me, God. Work on me, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you'd stand with me. If we could have the communion come. come up to take communion. 
It is very easy because we do church every Sunday. It's very easy to fall into the habit of just taking the communion and moving on. But as we come back and worship, I pray that you would ask yourself some questions. What are you, where are you guiding me, God? Because God has a purpose for your life and he's preparing you for that purpose. So what are you getting out the way right now, God? What are you removing? What are you doing? And just sit in that. Remind yourself of what God has been working on because the pain that you're feeling, it has a plan. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. We were that joy. On the other side of pain, there is glory. There's another story God is weaving. There's another season God is weaving. This fiery moment that you're in does not define you. It refines you. Let the glory of God just remind yourself, God, you have a story you're weaving in my life. There's something that's going to come out of this. There's something that's going to come out of this. <laughs> and there's something that's going to come out of you. Oh, yes. You are going to experience more freedom. Tonight, do business with Jesus. Talk to him. Let him speak into the very season you're in. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for allowing your body to be broken for us. Thank you for giving your blood for us, this new covenant. We ask God that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would just search our hearts, know where we're at, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You'll come down these aisles, you'll go out the outer aisles. Down the we hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.